Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 3, Episode 10, Peninsular Entanglements. The situation on the Korean peninsula in the mid-500s was this. Koguryo continued being the dominant power in the north, Silla had become a dominant power in the south, and Baekje was still holding on desperately to the southwest corner of the peninsula. China was, for the moment, still a disunified collection of petty states, but continued to hold a degree of significance for the Korean kingdoms, as each state would try different diplomatic tactics to secure official recognition, alliance, and, if possible, military aid. Let's start with Silla. In addition to seizing much of Baekje's northern and eastern lands, they also effectively annexed the Gaia Confederacy, who submitted to their rule in 562. Baekje's buffer state was gone, and their enemy was on the rise. The late-blooming eastern kingdom was expanding fast and now controlled part of the western coast of the peninsula. While this allowed them more ready access to China via the Yellow Sea, their military was kept very busy finalizing the conquest as the former citizens of Baekje and Koguryo in their annexed lands would periodically rebel against their new overlords. Silla seems to have effectively suppressed any rebellions, however, and neither Baekje nor Koguryo was able to effectively support their loyalists, albeit for different reasons. Koguryo was kept busy by a combination of internal instability, of rebellious generals wanting to choose their own heir to the throne, and repelling incursions of Goturk tribes on their northern borders. Baekje launched periodic raids into Silla, but these were small-scale smash-and-grab actions and not serious military endeavors. The royal court at Baekje, meanwhile, pursued alliances with various Chinese states, namely the Chen, Sui, and northern Qi states. Relocating their capital to sit along the Geum River made their court more accessible from the inlet at the Yellow Sea, and thus it became easier for them to pursue international relations. Baekje seems to have cultivated a friendlier relationship with Koguryo, perhaps seeing them as less of a threat now that they no longer shared a border. The northern Qi state, meanwhile, was clearly very flattered by the gifts and compliments which King Wideok of Baekje had sent in 567, and in 570 they granted him the title of Duke of Daifong Commandery. The use of Chinese titles by these various polities was a double-edged sword. One of the key factors in establishing legitimacy to rule both on the peninsula and in Japan was recognition from the Chinese, who were still a very valuable source of fine goods and culture. The Chinese generally interpreted the acceptance of these titles as a recognition of China's authority and a submission of vassalage from these barbarian kingdoms. The practical results for the rulers of Korea and Japan were that China would periodically shower them in expensive gifts like fine art, bolts of dyed silk, and books. 
While these gifts were generally sent only after the courts themselves sent gifts from their homeland, the states of Japan and Korea always received far more valuable gifts in return than those they had parted with. To the powers of the peninsula and archipelago at the time, this was a win-win situation with no practical downsides, at least for the moment. Likewise, Baikje pursued closer ties with the Yamato court of Japan, periodically sending craftspeople, monks, nuns, relics, statues, sutras, as well as other books meant to be enjoyed by the aristocracy of Wa. Unfortunately for Baikje, this was all taking place in the midst of the Soga Mononobe conflict, which generally occupied Japan's focus until the Battle of Shigisan in 587. Some of the treasures which Baikje sent are still featured in Japanese temples today. Koguryo likewise sought to ingratiate themselves with the powers of China and sent diplomatic missions to many of the warring states throughout the latter half of the 500s, in addition to fending off attacks from the Goturk Khaganate to their north. While Silla was actively expanding to their south, Koguryo didn't seem too worried about this because Silla was focused on resisting potential counterattacks from Baikje and had, after all, annexed Baikje's land because of a secret treaty initiated by Koguryo. After almost two centuries of heavy turnover and sudden reversals of fortune by the powers of China, in 581, a single state managed once more to bring its neighboring states under its authority. After unifying much of northeastern China, the northern Qi state was conquered by their western neighbor, the northern Zhou, in 577. A regent of the northern Zhou named Yang Jian, who was also the Duke of Sui and ethnically Han Chinese, then overthrew the ruling dynasty and established the Sui state in 581. There is, of course, much more to that story, but this is a history of Japan, and we only need concern ourselves with the broad strokes here. According to the Chronicles, the Sui state assembled an army in 588 of more than half a million soldiers to invade the only remaining independent Chinese kingdom ruled by the Chen dynasty in the south. These numbers are likely exaggerated, but it was probably a very large army nonetheless. By 589, Sui troops were advancing on the Chen capital, securing the surrender of that dynasty's final ruler. The Sui dynasty now ruled China, both north and south. I mentioned earlier that the newly established emperor of the Sui dynasty, Yang Jian, who was now named Emperor Wen, was Han Chinese. Hopefully you recall that many of the northern dynasties of this period were ruled over by Shanbei and other nomadic groups who sought to adopt Chinese customs once they had established authority over the north. Now that the North and South were reunited under the banner of a Han Chinese emperor, many ambitious courtiers saw this as an opportunity to get rid of what they saw as corrupt foreign practices and reinstitute the principles of Confucianism across the land. 
Emperor Wen walked a fine line of reforming the government by abolishing the departments created by the Shanbei, but still including nomads in many new offices he established across the north. There are many parallels between the Sui dynasty and the Qin dynasty of the Warring States period, and the two often draw comparisons. It is said that Emperor Wen spent his later years on lavish parties, living large on the taxpayer expense. However, he was also intent on expanding China's infrastructure, funding construction of the Grand Canal, which still exists today and remains, thanks to expansions and maintenance of later generations, the largest artificial river in the world. It should be mentioned, however, that many of his construction projects were also palaces and lavish imperial vacation homes. So how did this unification of China in the late 500 CE affect the Korean peninsula? When Emperor Wen first overthrew the northern Zhou, it created a big problem for the three Korean states. All three had done their share of hedging bets, which is to say that, for the most part, they maintained friendly diplomatic relations with many of the mainland states, but never committed to anything as formal or binding as a military alliance. Because the Sui dynasty was an emerging power, they had no diplomatic history, and this created a great deal of uncertainty among Baikje, Silla, and Koguryo. In the short term, all three of the peninsular states sent diplomatic missions to the Sui court, offering tribute and congratulations on their success. Emperor Wen's reign is definitely dramatic and features a lot of double-crossing, assassinations, and strategic marriages within the Goturk Cognate and other nomadic groups to the north. In 590, a new monarch ascended the throne of Koguryo, one King Yongyang, and he seems to have been thoroughly unimpressed by the new Chinese rulers. The Liaodong Peninsula had long been a source of contention between Koguryo and the northernmost powers of China, and in 598, Koguryo launched an assault on that territory, then named Ying Province. While the local governor organized a competent defense that prevented outright annexation, Emperor Wen was furious at this incursion, and he ordered a full-scale invasion of Koguryo, sending one of his sons to lead the Sui dynasty armies, as well as sending naval support. As ships loaded with food and soldiers embarked to support the land army already staging in Ying province, a sudden storm devastated the navy and jeopardized a valuable supply line. The Koguryo, likewise, had assembled a navy at this point, which harassed and sometimes sank ships which later attempted to cross the Yellow Sea. The land forces did not perform very well on their own. Stuck with meager rations even in the best of times, the Koguryo horsemen continually ransacked their land-based supply lines, and it wasn't long before the entire invasion became a debacle. Luckily for the Sui dynasty, King Yongyang agreed to a ceasefire and allowed the remaining Sui army to return home. However, as this was still happening, Baikje, seeing an opportunity in what they thought would be a long-term conflict, 
offered to help the Sui dynasty by sending their troops to aid. When Koguryo learned of this, it destroyed any lingering sympathies between these kingdoms, and the northern power launched several punitive pillage-and-burn raids across Baekje's northern border. But massive building projects and foreign policy quagmires were not the only noteworthy activities of the early Sui dynasty. Buddhism continued to grow and develop during this period, but a particular school was founded in China which marked an impressive milestone for the religion. As far as we know, every Buddhist school in China up to this point was essentially transplanted from India. Just before the rise of the Sui dynasty, a monk named Zhi Yi journeyed to the top of a faraway mountain with some disciples for a period of reflection and contemplation. His goal was to harmonize the various Buddhist sutras into a single, unified religious system. He and his followers remained on that mountain for ten years and then returned to the larger Buddhist community and spent many years after writing commentaries on various sutras with the same goal of taking complicated, often contradictory texts and creating a vast, unified belief system. The school of Buddhism which he is credited with founding thereafter is named after the mountains where he and his disciples had lived, and thus the Tiantai school was founded. The first school of Buddhism founded in China. To overcome the seeming disagreement between the many sutras which Zhi Yi consulted, he elevated one particular Mahayana sutra above the others, the Lotus Sutra. Because of the primacy that this scripture holds within the faith, the Tiantai school is sometimes called the Lotus School. Tiantai would find eager reception among the Chinese people as it had both the flavor of indigenous religion as well as the otherworldly big idea appeal of Buddhism. The progress of the Tiantai school would not be a gradual, steady process, and it suffered a decline after Zhi Yi's death, but would grow in popularity in later generations, and we will return to it a few seasons from now. Emperor Wen also sent armed forces to contend with Vietnam, which you may recall was included as part of the empire under the Han Dynasty. This was largely a defensive action, however, as the nation of Van Xuan in northern Vietnam was trying to annex Sui Dynasty lands north of its border. The first emperor of the Sui Dynasty died in 604, leaving his son, Yang Guang as the heir after arranging for most of the crown prince's rivals to be assassinated. He left a complicated legacy behind, a unifier of nations, but also, as one chronicle put it, a man who even treated his own sons as enemies. When Emperor Yang ascended the throne, he vigorously continued his father's policies, both the construction projects and the ambitious expansions. He renewed the war against Van Xuan of northern Vietnam and against Koguryo to the northeast. Once more the peninsula was threatened by Chinese invasion, but this time it had a few advantages over its allegedly more civilized opponent. Emperor Yang's domestic policies proved quite destabilizing. 
For one, he more fully promoted the education and bureaucratic examination system in a way that specifically excluded the Shanbei and Xiongnu nobles among the northern Chinese. While this made him more popular among the reactionary Confucian aristocrats, it meant that the nomadic tribes which had sworn suzerainty to the Sui dynasty now felt no obligation to answer orders from the emperor to send warriors to support the invasion of Koguryo. As we'll see in a moment, the loss of the nomadic cavalry in the Sui-Koguryo War would be felt most acutely by Emperor Yang's field armies. The invasion of Vietnam was costly, but initially produced results. Most of Von Schwan's land lay under Sui control after some hard fighting. However, the occupation itself was nothing short of disastrous. Having no immunity to the deadly tropical diseases which they encountered in the lands of Von Schwan, the Chinese troops quickly succumbed by the thousands to sickness, and eventually the remnants had to withdraw to China. The war in northern Korea held no better fortunes for the army of the Sui dynasty, as the Koguryo repelled every invasion sent to chastise them. Although an initial naval victory filled the Sui with confidence, an ambush at Pyongyang left thousands of them dead. The Koguryo-Sui wars were a source of embarrassment for the imperial court, as well as a huge strain on the treasury and on the national fighting stock. To make matters worse, a rebellion broke out in the home provinces during the third invasion of 613, which meant the army had to be recalled to crush the rebels before they were able to return the following year. When they did return, they managed to win a victory and even inch their way onto Koguryo's land, meeting quickly with trouble as Koguryo's cavalry disrupted their supply line through lightning ambushes and superior knowledge of the country. Although they were undeniably successful in the field, this annual warfare quickly proved to be a strain on Koguryo's economy, and it seems like they understood that they wouldn't be lucky forever. They repeatedly offered peace and even went so far as to return an important escaped rebel fugitive to the Sui dynasty who had fled to Koguryo hoping to attain asylum. This gesture seems to have impressed Emperor Yang, who agreed to peace on the condition that King Yongyang meet with him in person to ratify the agreement. When the time came, the king of Koguryo did not bother to show up, which enraged Emperor Yang. He swore that there would be a fifth campaign against Koguryo, that he would raise an army of millions to burn and pillage their enemy's land and restore the Han Dynasty's boundaries. This oath would prove empty. During the most recent fourth campaign, soldiers were so regularly deserting that the emperor had to resort to cruelly executing those caught fleeing their duty. And what's worse, this drastic punitive action seems to have had no practical effect on the rate of desertion. Intrigues and secret plans of staging coups began to crop up more frequently, and the emperor very quickly found himself needing to keep his army in the capital for fear of a real mass uprising that could threaten his rule. 
In 616, signs of serious internal problems began to emerge in the forms of both populist and aristocratic rebel leaders raising armies across the land and disrupting the cohesive empire which the emperor's father had worked so hard to build. At last, in 618, as important centers of food production and other economic infrastructure was seized by a variety of colorful rebel groups, the emperor's bodyguard, the Xiao Gao, staged a coup in which they surrounded him and accused him of committing crimes against his kingdom. He tried to reason with them, but in the end his fate was sealed, and they strangled him to death with his own scarf. At first, one of his young nephews was nominally crowned as the new emperor, but by 622, after an expected amount of fighting among those who now had armies at their disposal, it became clear that the Sui dynasty was at an end. However, this particular collapse did not result in the rise of independent regional powers which many previous dynastic tumbles had produced before. The comparisons with the Qin dynasty do not end with the simple act of unification and rigid authoritarian methods, but just as the fall of Qin resulted in the rise of Han, so the fall of Sui would result in the rise of a successor dynasty who would more effectively utilize its predecessor's strengths while also shedding some of its more glaring weaknesses. China would remain unified for the foreseeable future, and this unification would have serious consequences for the Korean Peninsula. In the next episode, we'll explore this ascendant dynasty and how it permanently altered the history of both Korea and Japan. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan. Visit the online store, ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web, ahistoryofjapan.com. 